Hello, this is session 13 of the WSC 2021 Novel Approaches in the Diagnosis of Sepsis and COVID-19. The session is moderated by Louise Thwaites from the Oxford University Clinical Research Unit in Vietnam and features six excellent speakers from all over the world. Before we get started, we'd like to especially thank Thermo Fisher for sponsoring this session. Thermo Fisher Scientific is the world leader in serving science. Their mission is to enable their customers to make the world healthier, cleaner, and safer. Now, over to Louise to get us going. Hello, um, good evening, or good evening from here in Vietnam from me. I'm Louise Thwaites, and I am moderating this session 13 of the World Sepsis Congress. I think it's a really exciting session. We're looking at novel approaches uh, in the diagnosis of sepsis and COVID-19. But before I start, I would like to thank the rest of the organizing committee for, for bringing this all together and to Thermo Fisher, who are our exclusive sponsor for this session. So just a tiny bit about me. I'm a clinician scientist based at the Oxford University Clinical Research Unit here in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, with a special interest in critical care in low resource settings. I am in the steering committee for the Asia Pacific Sepsis Alliance, and I lead their guidelines and policy group, and also a member of the Asia um, Critical Care Network, ICU network. Um, if you've been with us for the last two days, I think you will have heard many of the speakers talking about how timely diagnosis and accurate diagnosis of sepsis is really important to us achieving our ultimate gain of, of, of improving sepsis outcomes. So I think today's and tonight's session is particularly important because of that. We've got a really great lineup of six speakers. Um, they're all kind of leading very diverse fields. We're, we're gonna move from AI to genomics to implementation projects. And I'd really encourage you to use the chat box. Please put questions forward. Uh, they're a really nice group of speakers and, and make the most of this opportunity to interact with them. So the format of the session, we'll have about 10 minutes or so for each talk, and then a few minutes for question and answers. So again, I encourage you to interact, put your questions in the box. So with that, um, I'd like to move on to our very first speaker, and that's Professor Philip Schutz. Philip is joining us from Switzerland. He is an internist and an endocrinologist with a special interest in, in clinical nutrition. He's got very broad clinical and research interests uh, from the uh, endocrinology, infectious diseases, critical illness and general medicine. And he's done a lot of research in the field of nutrition, hormones and biomarkers. He has a professorship from the Swiss National Foundation and he currently works as head of the emergency and medical department at the Medical University Department in the Canton Spital Aro in Switzerland. So I welcome and introduce Philip Schutz. Well, thank you, Louise, and welcome uh, from my side as well. It's great to be here and to have the first um, speech today about the evidence for the role of biomarkers for antibiotic stewardship. Here you can see my uh, po uh, potential conflict of interests. Um, and I think if we talk about 
antibiotic stewardship, there is a lot of different key elements to that. It's about uh, supporting an interdisciplinary approach. It's about education. It's about controlling source of infection and other things. But I think where really uh, biomarkers can have the most impact for antibiotic stewardship is for two key elements. And this is first prescribing antibiotics when they are truly needed. And second, using the shortest duration of antibiotics based on evidence. Um, I think here, really, biomarkers can make a difference. So if we talk about biomarkers in general for sepsis, I think we talk about two different types of markers. So one of the markers are host-directed biomarkers, um, which would be these levels, such as C-reactive protein, which is an inflammatory marker, or procalcitonin, uh, which is more an infection marker. Uh, and they tell you information about how the host is responding to infection. The other types of marker are then more the, the, um, the marker of the pathogen itself. So we can have cultures, we can have PCR tests. And I think the big challenge for us, if we want to manage a patient with sepsis, is how can we add all this information in a meaningful way to actually have a benefit for our patient. So I think most importantly, what we have to do is we have to think about um, the patient. Um, we have to integrate all the information we have into the big puzzle of the patient. So always first, we have to do a pre-test probability for the patient, is it a bacterial infection or is it rather not a bacterial infection? Most of the patients we see in the emergency department or ICU on the first day of admission, we are not sure about it. But we have to make an assessment. Do we Are we certain or uncertain? Um, because based on the pretest probability, our biomarker is going to help us differently. So let's say we have a patient and we have uncertain bacterial infection. We, we don't think it's bacterial infection, but he looks inflamed. And then we have the low biomarker. Then it would tell us, well, bacterial infection becomes extremely unlikely. Now, on the other hand, if we see a patient where sepsis is highly likely, then we have to be more prudent and we have to look at the biomarker differently. Because as we all know, biomarkers are not 100% accurate. And though we have to add it to our clinical and microbiological um, workup, and then it can also influence antibiotic management. So only in a patient where we have a low pretest probability for bacterial infection and a low biomarker level, we may not want to use antibiotics on admission. Um, and in a patient where we have a high clinical likelihood, we may still overrule the biomarker just to be on the safe side and may use the biomarker later on to de-escalate treatment. So if we use the biomarkers such as PCT, um, uh, then what is the clinical benefit for the patient? And there has been a lot of different trials that have compared biomarker-guided care to patients with routine care. Um, and we have done some work, some meta-analytical work, together with the Cochrane Library. We have gathered a lot of these trials, and we were able to obtain individual patient data So, um, of all these patients included in these previous trials. And we have done a couple of different analyses to see, well, what's the effect in regard to consumption of antibiotics in regard to clinical outcomes? So taken together, um, when you look at all the patients today that have been included 
in such trials for respiratory tract infections, you see this is what you get in regard to antibiotic consumption. Um, and you see we have two different effects. We have lower use of antibiotics on admission, and this is particularly true if you have patients with a bronchitis type syndrome, so COPD exacerbation, bronchitis. These patients typically use, um, have lower antibiotic use with the use of a biomarker um, approach. But also you have for the typical sepsis patient, which you are going to treat on admission, for this patient you can have uh, a shorter duration of treatment and thereby reduce overall exposure. And you see in this analysis, which was focused on respiratory infection, we had overall a reduction of mean antibiotic usage from about 8 to 5.7 um, days. So it is quite a reduction in antibiotics. Now, more importantly, maybe for us than antibiotics is also the question, well, how about the clinical endpoints? Um, if we shorten antibiotics, do we hurt the patient in the end? And I think there have been some very important trials looking at this. And the largest trial today comes from the Netherlands, from Evelyn de Young and her group, the SAP study. And you see, this was a, a large study with over um, 1,500 patients with um, septic infection in the ICU. And the author found not only a reduction in antibiotic use, but actually there was a reduction in mortality. Um, so in this trial, um, if you had standard care, your risk of dying was about 25% increased compared of the biomarker approach. We had similar results also in the meta-analysis, so taking all, patient, all these trials together, um, where we had about a 20% reduction in the risk of mortality of treatment failure, and also we had a lower risk of antibiotic side effects, which of course was associated with the lower antibiotic use um, in these patients. So how about PCT and COVID? Um, and I think this is an important question because COVID, um, of course, um, is a, a very severe lung infection. And for some patients, we are not sure whether it's only COVID infection or whether it could be super infection, particularly for patients remaining in the ICU for a longer time. Maybe they have another spike of CRP. They, ha they may have another fever episode. And we're asking, well, could it be infection? So I think PCT has been studied here in a number um, of trials and studies. Um, and I think uh, so far, we have two main conclusions. So the first one is that PCT, in the concept of in in the context of a COVID infection, provides prognostic information. Um, and so here you see that there have been a, a couple of different risk scores. There, there is one which I think is is pretty um, convincing, which was just published in the in the clinical infectious disease end of last year. And so the author found that actually five different markers, um, including neutrophils, lymphocyte, PCT, CRP, and the age of patients, all together gave a pretty high prognostic accuracy. Um, and you can see that a patient with a low risk, based on this score, had an almost 0% uh, mortality rate, while if you had an increase in the score, your risk would go up to about um, to about uh, um, 40%. So prognostically, I think an increase in PCT gives you prognostic information. But there is also some studies uh, looking at PCT as an antibiotic stewardship guide. I have not seen randomized studies, but I have seen studies looking at patients um, where PCT was used during um, routine care. And I think this is one of these studies I would like to share with you. Um, and you see the, the authors used a similar approach I have just shown you. So looking at the patient, is it clearly sepsis? 
they would give antibiotics uh, without considering any marker because uh, it is a dangerous disease. But if not, they would hold off. And then they would piece, they would use PCT as well as the clinical, um, the, the clinical course to decide to early stop antibiotics. And also in this study, they used the PCT cutoff of 0.25. So a patient clinically responding, having a level below that uh, PCT of 0.25, it, they would advise against use of antibiotics and for the stop of antibiotics. And so basically the results here, they uh, suggest that in patients where PCT was lower dropped, um, there was a, a much lower use of antibiotics compared to these patients with uh, higher PCT um, levels. So the, the study concluded that the low PCT was helpful in the de-escalation of antibiotics in the COVID-infected patients um, with possible superinfection. And I think that's uh, one of the big um, rationales that, is, that uh, people are been, have been using. So taken together, together, what's the evidence for PCT in sepsis and in COVID? I think for sepsis, we do have strong data, particularly for the respiratory tract infections, pneumonia, bronchitis type infections, COPD exacerbation, but also uh, for surgical patients um, and for patients coming in with different sort of sepsis. I think here we do have the strong randomized trials. Now for corona, for COVID infections, I think there is some interesting studies out there, but we do not have the large randomized um, evidence today um, that we want to have um, before widespread implementation. But um, what I have seen so far regarding prognosis and also the, the, the stewardship studies have been, uh, have been promising, and I'm sure we will learn more in the, in the next weeks and months how to best use the biomarker approach to manage patients with COVID-19. And with that, I'd like to close and thank you again for your attention. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Philip. That was really, really um, excellent start to our session and, and followed on really nicely from the previous session looking at uh, antimicrobial resistance and, and sepsis diagnosis. Um, I'm just looking at the chat here. There's a quick question. Um, I think this might be quite hard for you to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, what do you think is the PCT cutoff value for an antibiotic? So, so actually, the, the cutoffs that have been used mostly is 0.25 for the patient with a typical respiratory type infection. Um, and um, for the, the very severe septic patient, um, the cutoff um, that, that was used mostly is 0.5. So let's say, um, in my experience, for the COVID patients, I have seen most of these patients actually coming in uh, the hospital with a very low PCT level, so 0.5 one or even lower than that. Um, if during the course of disease, the patient, you know, um, deteriorates and his PCT spikes up, um, and I have seen patients with super infection, and they usually they will go up higher than 0.5 or higher than one or two or even higher than that. Um, but in, in the normal COVID patient that is going smoothly without uh, problems, PCT remains uh, quite low in my clinical experience so far. Okay, thanks very much. Um, I'd like to follow on. I, I work here in Vietnam, and as you probably know, um, PCT is quite an expensive investigation in a lot of countries. Do you have any idea whether there have been some cost-benefit studies done or, or anything that might suggest it is worth implementing in lower resource settings, particularly if it saves antibiotic use? 
Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great question. Um, actually, there have been a number of cost-benefit studies. Um, and I think, um, you know, the, the studies show if you have a patient, let's say in the ICU, and you spend um, and, and, you, and you can reduce your antibiotics by two or three days, and antibiotics are very expensive. And if you can um, reduce that by two or three measurements of PCT, then this is clearly a cost-effective strategy. Um, because you have lower antibiotics, you have also some benefits in regards to complications, maybe C. diff and other things. Now, I think what is important is that we use PCT only in situations where actually the biomarker can have a, an impact on the clinical decision making. So if we do know that we will use antibiotics anyway, um, or if we do know we are not going to use antibiotics anyway, um, I don't think the biomarker is going to add a lot. I and mean, in this situation, it's not going to be cost effective. So we should focus really on these um, patients, these situations where we believe the marker can add, you know, to our, to our clinical management. And, and there I see respiratory tract infections um, and also ICU patients where we can shorten the duration. I see these as the, the major um, you know, population where we will see a uh, cost benefit. Okay, uh, a couple of quick questions in the chat there. Firstly, do cutoff um, vary in patients with cancer? No, actually, um, actually not. I mean, there is some types of cancers such as um, C-cell carcinoma of the thyroid, um, where the cancer is just, you know, producing uh, procalcitonin. But this, this is quite a rare situation. But normally, you know, in a patient in a patient with cancer, you would expect that this patient has low PCT, unmeasurable PCT, and only in you know when he's infected, uh, his PCT increases. But there, you can use the normal cutoffs. Okay, thank you very much, Philip. I think actually we're going to have to move on now. I think you can interact directly. Um, there's still one more question in the chat um, there. Um, so thank you very much, Philip. Um, I'm now going to introduce our next speaker. And, and Philip's talk really has, has brought up this issue of biomarkers. And I think this is now really going to be developed through the next couple of talks as, as we move into the field of precision medicine. Um, and our first speaker on this is going to be Professor Tom van der Poel. He is a specialist in internal medicine and infectious diseases. He's a professor of medicine and chair of the Department of Medicine at the Amsterdam University Medical Center. He's former chair of the International Sepsis Forum and was actually a member of the international committees that established the new sepsis definitions in 2016 and the surviving sepsis guidelines. Um, his research focuses on pneumonia and sepsis and particularly the areas of host response and pathogenesis. And today, Tom is going to talk to us on how precision medicine is going to change sepsis management. So I welcome Tom now. Thank you very much, Louise. Um, so this is my first slide about how precision medicine will change sepsis management. Um, and um, what um, the, this slide depicts, and I'm not sure whether the animations are visible, but if not, then I'll, I'll guide you through it. Um, in the upper part of this graph um, is the host response depicted is primarily pro-inflammatory, whereas in the lower part in blue, it's the anti-inflammatory part of the host response. And what I depicted here in the upper part is the fact that uh, for decades we've been doing trials seeking to inhibit the pro-inflammatory response of sepsis. And all of these been, uh, have been more or less uh, off target. 
um, the primary endpoint of all of these trials was um, mortality, usually 28-day mortality. And um, all of these trials failed to accomplish a benefit with regards to this primary endpoint. Now, what you have to realize that all of these trials used what we call now prognostic enrichment, and um, which means that the patient population that was enrolled in these trials were enriched for the primary outcome. So they were basically very severely ill, uh, the high likelihood of dying, because otherwise you have to design trials with thousands and thousands of patients, because you will never be able to show benefit if the primary endpoint is not that prevalent. So patients were not selected based on the likelihood uh, of which they would benefit from a certain intervention. They were basically selected on severity of disease. Um, and this is depicted on this slide also, which, which was actually made by the next speaker, Hector Wong. Um, here on the, on the left part, you would see prognostic enrichment. So these patients that are heterogeneous, the sepsis populations are stratified according to their mortality risk in a low mortality risk and a high mortality risk. And this is what we call prognostic enrichment. Now the patients with low mortality risk in the upper part could be treated with standard care. However, the patients with high mortality risk could be further stratified into subpopulation that are more likely to benefit from a certain immunological or biological intervention. And this is what we call predictive enrichment. So um, enrichment of the population with patients that are more likely to benefit from a specific intervention. This is an example of a recent sepsis trial that, that uh, sought to use predictive enrichment. And this is the trial um, looking at soluble thrombomodulin in patients with sepsis-associated coagulopathy. So what, what I uh, show here is that patients were selected based on sepsis, but also based on some laboratory values that would indicate coagulopathy. And this was depicted here. Unfortunately, even though predictive enrichment was used in this trial, uh, there was no signal. As you can see the far right end of this slide, there was no benefit with regards to survival. Now, if you go back again to this pathophysiology slide and looking then at the lower part of the slide, and it's a little bit obscured because the animation is not there, but I highlighted there some of the key features of anti-inflammation in sepsis, which in, in the end can result in immune suppression. And there has been many investigators out there that now advocate the use of immune-enhancing therapy rather than anti-inflammatory therapies, uh, such as been evaluated in the past decades in clinical sepsis trials. Now, if we look at potential interventions that might enhance um, immu immunity in patients with sepsis, so um, seeking to reverse the immune suppression um, that sepsis patients usually suffer from, um, the intervention listed here, interferon gamma in the uh, upper uh, left corner, GMCSF, and also um, um, interventions targeting programmed cell death, one or the ligand thereof. IL-7 has also been evaluated in patients with seven and uh, with sepsis and IL-7 mainly targets lymphocytes. Now, some of these trials uh, have indeed used predictive enrichment. And this is an example of a relatively old trial that evaluated GM-CSF in patients with sepsis and patients were only enrolled if they had signs of immune suppression as reflected by a low monocyte HLA-DR expression. That's the, the red arrow in, on the top part of the slide. So only if they had this low expression, which is indicative of immune suppression, they were enrolled. And patients with normal 
HLA-DR expression on monocytes were not um, found eligible for this trial. It was a fairly small trial, as you can see, uh, only 38 patients. Um, and what's also nice and illustrative of precision medicine, then you, you give the intervention and um, this readout, the readout based on which you selected the patients for this treatment can also be used for treatment monitoring. So you have to realize that many of the anti-inflammatory strategies that were tested in patients with sepsis did not have such a readout. So did not have a readout that monitored the immunological effect of the intervention. Now, in this case, they monitored on the left side HLA-DR expression. And uh, sure enough, patients treated with GMCSF in the black dots showed an increase in HLA-DR expression, whereas those not treated with GMCSF did not show this. And also another sign of immune suppression was reversed. Uh, that's the reduced capacity to produce a tumor necrosis factor by blood leukocytes upon stimulation with um, lipopolysaccharide, a negative uh, bacterial component. Clinical endpoints, the, the trial was not powered for this, but there was some non-significant benefit with regards to mortality. This is another example of predictive, predictive enrichment um, uh, interleukin-7. Only patients enrolled in this trial with lymphocytopenia um, and not patients without that. So lymphocytopenia is also considered to be a marker of immune suppression. And IL-7 specifically targets the lymphocytopenia. That is, it's associated with an increase in lymphocyte counts, as you might appreciate from the lower graphs uh, that shows the effect of IL-7 um, in the colored lines, so the red and the blue lines. Okay, now more recently, there have been an interesting uh, set of um, studies uh, focusing on the so-called macrophage activation-like syndrome, which is a marker of, of a, a reflection of hyperinflammation uh, in sepsis and also in other diseases. And the presence of macrophage activation-like syndrome might help um, in selecting those patients that might benefit from anti-inflammatory therapy. And the excitement primarily came from this retrospective analysis of trial with interleukin-1 receptor antagonists, so Enakinra, uh, an, um, an, an intervention inhibiting IL-1 effects on anti-inflammatory strategy. The trial was published in the 90s, totally negative. But when they did a retrospective analysis of this trial, they found that patients that had evidence, laboratory evidence of a so-called macrophage, macrophage activation-like syndrome did benefit from interleukin-1 receptor antagonist treatment. And this is in the lower bullet point. So the, the presence of this macrophage activation-like syndrome is based on hepatobiliary dysfunction and disseminated intravascular coagulation. And if we only look at these patients, they benefited from IL-1-RA. So this has raised enthusiasm that predictive enrichment might also work in patients with sepsis. Um, and I'm going to provide the example that, um, of a trial that has just been completed. Results are not uh, available yet, where they stratified patients based on a pro-inflammatory phenotype or an immune suppressive phenotype. So pro-inflammatory phenotype was defined as a ferritin level above 44 20 nanograms per mil. And in a separate paper, uh, the Greek sepsis uh, group showed that this was a reliable marker, sensitive and rather specific for macrophage activation-like syndrome in patients with sepsis. Uh, but patients that had a low uh, monocyte HLA-DR expression were stratified to an immune stimulatory therapy. And which therapies did they choose? Uh, these are the PIs, Evangelos Germanos Bourboulos and Mihai Netea. 
um, they treated with interleukin-1 receptor antagonist if uh, the ferritin level was above uh, 4,000, and they treated with interferon gamma if the patient had signs of immune paralysis, that is, HLA-DR expression that is low. Um, so this is a, a classic example of predictive enrichment. They now um, treat the patients not as a whole group, but they select the patients, stratify the patients, and then base the, the, the specific immunological intervention on the likelihood by which they might um, benefit from this intervention. So this is already getting to a, a, to a summary slide. What I've tried to uh, show you um, is that early trials almost exclusively used uh, only prognostic enrichment. So they only selected severely ill patients with a high likelihood of dying and did not take into account biological mechanisms that were dominant in this patient population. Now, what precision medicine or personalized medicine uh, implicates is that we do predictive enrichment of the heterogeneous sepsis population, where we stratify patients based on certain biomarkers or profiles um, in subgroups that are more likely to benefit from a certain intervention. Um, I've given you the example uh, of ferritin and monocyte HLA-DR expression, as biomarkers that might help to certify patients, and also lymphocyte exhaustion markers can be used to identify patients with immune suppression. And more modern, and Hector Wong is one of the, the main uh, investigators that have done this, um, you can also do unbiased approaches, and thus far, in particular, transcriptomics of blood leukocytes has been used in this area, but you might also envision that other omics fields like lipidomics or proteomics can be used, metabolomics, uh, to identify patients in a more unbiased way that are that belong to a certain group biologically uh, within this entire big group of sepsis that is very heterogeneous. So in summary, what I've tried to, I've tried to convey the message that the one target fits all principle should be abandoned in sepsis. This is a very heterogeneous um, syndrome and it's unlikely that all patients would benefit from a single immunological intervention. These patients can be stratified into subgroups that are more likely to benefit from a certain immunological uh, intervention. And um, obviously, we need um, the answers quickly. So we need bedside tests with computational support uh, and possibly supported by artificial intelligence um, to stratify those patients in more heterogeneous groups. Um, and this might really advance the field and make uh, precision medicine possible even in the field of sepsis. Thank you very much for your attention. Uh, thank you very much, Tom. That was a really um, comprehensive and very clear talk. Um, and I think you've introduced very nicely this concept um, of, of the problems we have in sepsis management and diagnosis because of the heterogeneity of the population. And I know we're gonna be coming back to it later in, in this session as well with some of the other talks. Um, a question actually in the chat, uh, which probably we can use for, for many speakers, was, was are there any biomarkers we can use, or I guess we could extend that um, to other markers that can give a fast response? I think, I think probably the question was designed for immediate use in, in the clinical setting. Well, the very short answer is no. Um, so the previous speaker spoke about procalcitonin, which has been used basically mainly uh, to stratify patients to bacterial infection or non-bacterial infection. Uh, but that, that's not really the topic of this talk or precision medicine. Um, 
molecular markers that have been evaluated um, in, in literature, and that's RNA profiles, uh, can be transferred into bedside testing because PCR-based testing uh, tests are already available. Um, only the contents uh, need, needs to be decided upon. So there's, there's a couple of molecular signatures out there uh, based on transcriptomics data um, that have not been prospectively evaluated thus far, but hold promise the, for future use maybe in, in the clinics. So one of these sepsis signature identifies patients that are harmed by corticosteroids, for example. Um, and Hector Wong has looked at pediatric sepsis, also looking at signatures that might tell you which children might benefit from corticosteroids and which children uh, are not um, uh, do not benefit from this treatment. There's also evidence from the ARDS literature. Uh, Cameron Kelvin uh, has done a lot of work in this uh, area. Um, and she also developed signatures based on proteins, mainly uh, protein biomarkers, to identify patients that might benefit, for example, from statin therapy or, from, um, or, or can be harmed by certain fluid challenges. So in clinical practice, not in use yet, um, but I think we, we will see that in the future. Great. Thank you. That's really helpful. So we, we're now going to move on to our next talk. So I'd like to say again, thank you very much for Tom um, that for that talk. We're moving on. We're, we're going to stick with the theme really of heterogeneity. And we're going to move on to Pravesh Khatri, who is our next speaker and is an associate professor at the Institute of Immunity, Transplantation and Infection and the Division of Biomedical Informatics Research in the Departments of Medicine and Biomedical Data Science at Stanford University. His research focuses on developing machine learning methods to interrogate large and very heterogeneous data sets, but real life data across a broad spectrum of diseases, um, and particularly aims to define disease signatures which are relevant for diagnosis, prognosis, and mechanistic understanding. So Pravesh is going to be talking particularly around the mRNA signatures in sepsis, and hopefully giving us some insights into this and, and um, the disease itself. Thank you. Um, uh, thank you for inviting me and thank you for the kind introduction. So I was given a topic to, to talk about uh, mRNA signatures uh, that have been uh, uh, observed in sepsis and how it, it allows us to look into causative organisms. So this, this audience doesn't need any introduction on um, how big the problem sepsis is or, or that majority of the patients uh, uh, we cannot detect the causative organism despite significant advances in different uh, technologies for detecting uh, a pathogen. But there are a few advances uh, in, recently that really allow us to, to start thinking about pathogen identification in, uh, in, in uh, different ways. So number one, this is not recent. This is the advance that's been going on for a few million years. Uh, and that's the immune system. If you think about uh, what an immune system has evolved to be, it's a distributed sensor with a built-in amplifier. And what do I mean by that is, is that it, this is a, a host response that continuously surveils every organ and, and is 
has been continuously evolving to, con to precisely identify different pathogens and how to respond to them even when they are not in the bloodstream and they are isolated in a, in a, in a, in a specific organ. So one thing to think about uh, that, that we can start taking an advantage of is asking immune system, hey, what are you looking at? And, and use that to, to improve our diagnosis and prognosis of, of uh, 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 a patient with an infectious disease. The second um, uh, advance, and that's relatively recent in the last 20 years, is starting to think about how to leverage the heterogeneity that exists across different data sets. So if you think about traditional biomedical research paradigm, we usually start our research with a relatively homogeneous group of patients. So for example, uh, 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 blue people. And, and the traditional approach has been to discover a biomarker in this relatively homogeneous patient population, show that in the same patient population, it continues to perform. And then um, before we can go in a clinical trial or a clinical practice, uh, show that it works in other patient population and it starts to fail. So the results, because this, this entire approach of using a single cohort doesn't represent the real world patient population heterogeneity and lacks the generalizability. But since the, the microarrays came onto uh, the scene, what's happened is these data are continuously collected in public domain. So now what, what is possible is to take multiple data sets that come from different cohorts, from different countries, generated by different investigators in different patient populations and, and integrate them into, into single analysis. And what this allows us to do is it allows us to account for biological, clinical, technical heterogeneity between and across data sets, identify more generalizable solutions that increase the a priori probability of, of um, uh, continue to perform just the way they are intended in uh, other unseen patient population. And um, uh, these and then these advances coupled with, with uh, uh, the availability of large amount of data with the machine learning uh, advances. Now what's possible is actually to take large amount of really heterogeneous data. I'm going to give you uh, some examples. Apply machine learning methods that, that uh, instead of thinking of heterogeneity between data sets, as a curse, it, use, it, it considers it a blessing in disguise and, and finds diagnostics that are really generalizable despite patient's age, host genetic background, the environmental exposure, sex, the, 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 uh, the, st the strain of the pathogen, uh, irrespective of uh, across different studies at what time point the patient samples were collected, the comorbidities they may have, it accounts for these methods now really allow us to account for this heterogeneity upfront when we are doing a biomarker discovery instead of making it an afterthought of a, a diagnostic biomarker being locked and when we are trying to validate in independent uh, cohorts. So how do these methods usually work? And here is the first uh, uh, application in, uh, in, in the field of sepsis where we started with 24 cohorts that came from really large number of uh, patient population. Uh, this was a fantastic collaboration actually with, uh, with Hector. 
And uh, we were able to show that despite all of the heterogeneity, there were an 11 gene signature that distinguished inflammation due to infection from, uh, from uh, a sterile infection. And um, uh, we were then able to follow up and show that even when you go in even a larger cohort of uh, larger number of uh, studies that are even more heterogeneous, um, these uh, uh, transcriptome-based signature or a, or a host response-based signature continues to perform just as well. There is no overfitting in, uh, in a statistical, uh, statistical speak or uh, another way to say it, it continues to perform with the same accuracy in completely unseen, prospectively collected well, uh, cohorts. But then you can say, well, this is us uh, uh, hyping up our own work, right? So there have been prospective studies by independent groups showing that these host response signature continues to perform with the model that was described uh, in, in a previous paper that they continue to perform with the same accuracy as they were described in the original paper. And, and then the, um, uh, the paper on the right on, in a critical care medicine literally came out yesterday after I submitted my slide. So again, uh, the prospective validations of these host response-based signatures are starting to continuously show that um, uh, uh, immune system can really do what it's supposed to do. But we can even go further. We can now start adding uh, machine learning models that, uh, uh, that really uh, uh, consider uh, nonlinear relationships between these uh, uh, mRNAs. And you can apply these models, locked models, with preset thresholds, uh, just as we would want to do in a clinical practice, and then apply and then validate in prospectively collected cohorts on a completely different platform to show that um, uh, they still continue to perform very well with um, uh, uh, very high specificities and sensitivities. But in sepsis, just as, as uh, Philippe uh, was uh, talking about earlier, uh, the antimicrobial resistance, simply knowing that somebody has infection is not good enough. We also need to know whether they should be treated with antibiotic or not. So there have been a large number of uh, uh, transcriptional uh, transcription signatures described for uh, identifying whether a patient has a bacterial infection or a viral infection. And, and when you look at these uh, signatures and how they were discovered, they again used uh, just by the virtue of the kind of the, uh, the, the groups that were really uh, working on this, turns out that each one of these signatures are usually defined using patient populations in the Western um, uh, hemisphere. So what happens is uh, it's more extracellular bacterial infections that are prevalent, not the intracellular bacterial infection. So when you, when you use these same signatures and apply them to patients with intracellular bacterial infections, their accuracy dramatically drop to a point where uh, um, uh, uh, several, um, uh, a lot of intracellular bacterial infections may get diagnosed as viral infection and, and we cannot really uh, reduce the antimicrobial resistance. So, but given that now there is a large amount of data available and, and there is participation also increasing from patients from the, uh, from the uh, 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 other countries, we can now 
and and we have been able to now take uh, uh, even even larger number of samples than before, uh, thousands of samples simultaneously, uh, tens of cohorts across uh, uh, multiple different countries, and identify host response that is even more generalizable that truly uh, leverages what the immune system has learned over millions of years to, to say, this is a bacteria, this is a viral infection, this is a conserved host response that I need to uh, um, uh, use uh, and, and respond to this pathogen and really show in a completely prospective cohorts from different countries than the ones that were used for, for, for identifying these biomarkers and show that they are still continuing to identify whether a patient has a bacterial or a viral infection with sensitivities and specificities in, uh, uh, in a 90% range. But then, just as Tom was saying, um, uh, this is the diagnosis. The next step is to figure out whether a patient, um, uh, what is going to happen to the patient at the time of presentation. So this is another paper that just came out in immunity um, uh, 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 earlier this month, actually, uh, last week, where we were able to take thousands of viral infection uh, cross-sectional studies be uh, and, and use that to show that at the time of presentations, we can identify what trajectory the patients are going to be on, which allows us to predict at the presentation whether a person with a viral infection will have a, a severe infection or a mild outcome, and depending on that, better triage them. But what is even more important is when you look at these patient trajectories, you start to realize that that there are two types of broad categories of host response. There is a detrimental host response and a protective host response. So now you can start imagining therapies where on one side you have um, a drug that suppresses detrimental host response. And on the other side, uh, it uh, enhances the protective host response, which we can imagine in the long run would start improving uh, the patient's outcome uh, overall. So to summarize what I just told you, um, Really, uh, host response can allow us to detect presence, type, and severity of infection. These host response signatures are now starting to implement in uh, to be implemented onto a point of care devices. Uh, for example, and I'm a co-founder of uh, Inflamatic, so that's my my uh, conflict of interest. But we have now developed uh, um, a device. Uh, with uh, a sample to answer cartridge that uh, with the 30 minute turnaround time that can measure up to 64 genes simultaneously. So you can imagine a single cartridge that is able to measure each of these diagnostic tests in a single cartridge with 30 minute turnaround time and be able to respond to more than 2 billion cases of infections worldwide every year. And that's the, that's the potential that these MRA signatures are starting to provide. I'll, I'll um, uh, uh, stop here by thanking the people who really do this fantastic work. Allow me to take the credit, all the collaborators who, who really support our computational analysis by, by enrolling patients, doing the trial, and showing that uh, we are really starting to um, uh, move uh, diagnostic into this, into this new phase. And the funders, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Profesh. That's um, really, really fasc fascinating and, and very coherent overview of, of the topic. Um, 
I think it's really exciting that you're able to leverage these really large and, and different data sets. And, and that brings up the question that has come up in the chat here. Um, how do you discriminate between biological heterogeneity and technological heterogeneity? I, I guess that means in terms of exactly which tests are done or perhaps the technologies involved if you're combining these multiple cohorts. Right. So, so that's a great question. I always get asked this question that um, uh, there is so much heterogeneity that how do you know that your results are not confounded by, by certain things? And, and, and the answer, and it's not a coward's answer, but it is me trying to, to, to challenge a, a different way of thinking. While we've been told that the heterogeneity is a curse, it is not a curse. It's actually a blessing in disguise that if if a biological signal if is true, it should exist irrespective of whether uh, a patient is a two-year-old or an eight-year-old, whether it was measured using an RNA-seq, a microarray, or a PCR. If the signal changes depending on what technology you reuse, uh, it may not be really a robust technology that we can apply to a global problem such as antimicrobial resistance. So our approach is not to correct for any of those, but actually account for those heterogeneity and say that I am looking for a signal when we are doing our discovery analysis and look for a signal or look for a set of variables that are consistently able to discriminate between um, uh, the two groups that we are interested in, irrespective of whether the patient was young or old, man or a woman, had a comorbidity or not, uh, whether they were measured using uh, one technology versus the other. And that is what the, the advances in machine learning have really allowed us to do, to, to instead of worrying about reducing the heterogeneity, embrace it and leverage it to find more robust uh, diagnostic signals. Okay, great. And just, just very quickly, um, and we're, this is all about finding global solutions uh, for a global problem. Are you aware of any challenges getting getting a really heterogeneous data from different settings? I, I'm guessing most of the data sets you work with come from high income settings at the moment. Uh, that's a great question. So I would have five years ago, I would have said, yes, that was the problem, but not anymore. Um, there has been more awareness that we really need to bring in more heterogeneity. And for those of you who are interested in doing anything like this, uh, the NCBI has a gene expression omnibus database uh, where we've, it, it now has more than 3 million transcriptome profiles publicly available for anybody in the world to use without signing any IRB. Everything is, de -anonym, uh, everything is anonymized. And we've been able to show across a broad spectrum of diseases um, uh, and that includes organ transplant, autoimmune diseases, vaccinology, that there is sufficient data available. And once you have four to five data sets for a given disease uh, included, usually your signals tend to be really robust and um, uh, you uh, typically accounted for most of the heterogeneity. Thank you very much for that talk. So we'll now move on to our, our next talk of this session. I think really it's almost been introduced by, by Professor van der Poel earlier. Our next speaker is Hector Wong. And as you know, and you probably heard, he has already been introduced um, regarding the topic of 
predictive enrichment and his work in that area. So Hector is a professor of paediatrics at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center and the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. He is also the director of critical care medicine at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center and Cincinnati Children's Hospitals Research Foundation. And his research is focused on translational research in septis, but particularly utilizing a large multi-institutional genomic and clinical database of pediatric septic shock. And Hector is going to talk to us particularly about this idea of theragnostics and phenotyping for, sep for sepsis trials. Um, so it gives me great pleasure to introduce Hector. Thank you, Louise. Uh, I'm going to assume that you can see my slides and hear me unless I hear otherwise from you. So good good afternoon, good morning, good evening to everyone. Um, it's good to be here with such a large audience um, committed to combating sepsis. So hopefully this is of interest to you and it'll build on some of the previous talks. So these are my disclosures, funding from the NIH. Um, my institution and I hold a number of patents related to sepsis biomarkers, and I'm on the um, scientific advisory board of these two um, biotechnology uh, companies that are dedicated to sepsis. So let's get back to this important concept of enrichment that Dr. Vanderpoel uh, introduced. Again, by way of reminder, enrichment in general refers to the use of any patient characteristic to select a population in which your intervention is probably more likely to be effective when compared to an unselected population. And then there are two more specific forms of enrichment. There's prognostic enrichment, which is uh, the selection of a patient population more likely to have a disease-related event, such as mortality. And to follow up on what um, Dr. Vanderpoel said earlier, I think it is accurate to say that previous trials have used a form of prognostic enrichment based on clinical criteria, um, but that we can do better and that perhaps biomarkers can enhance the, the, our ability to, um, to conduct prognostic enrichment. And then also, as Dr. Vanderpoel indicated, there's the concept of predictive enrichment, which means that you select a patient population in which your inter intervention of interest is more likely to be effective based on under, underlying biology or, or physiological mechanism. And I couldn't agree more with, with Dr. Vanderpoel, at least to what he was alluding to, is that to me, these are the key concepts or the key enablers of realizing the promise of precision medicine um, for sepsis and other forms of critical illness. So this is another cartoon version of what Dr. Vanderpoel uh, <clears throat> showed earlier. Imagine a heterogeneous sepsis cohort. Each dot there is, is supposed to be a patient, and each color is a subset of those patients. And that perhaps <clears throat> we should be doing something analogous to this, and that we first divide the patients using prognostic enrichment. And I would argue that those who are low-risk patients um, probably are not going to benefit or derive much of a benefit from an experimental intervention. And so <clears throat> those patients perhaps should be parsed out uh, and treated with standard of care and not be enrolled in some of these higher end trials. And then that leaves you with the higher risk patients and then perhaps those patients could undergo a form of predictive enrichment, which selects them for treatment with, with um, therapies that are targeting a, a specific biological mechanism but it's more likely to be effective because you 
presumably selected those patients based on commonality of having that mechanism that can be targeted. And so I'll show you a few examples of that. Um, one is this thing that we call um, Persevere, which is something we call the Pediatric Sepsis Biomarker Risk Model. And it's, um, it's a serum protein uh, biomarker-based decision tree and the way that we got to those biomarkers is some of the transcriptomic work that uh, Dr. Kotri referred to. Um, and it, the tree is really not that complicated. It's based on classification and regression tree methodology. And what it allows us to do is to provide a baseline risk of mortality among children with septic shock. So this is a form of prognostic enrichment. And to get, again, to build on what Dr. Kotri um, said, this is at the time of presentation. This is when we measure those biomarkers. So to emphasize what he said earlier, I think that's the time where I think it's probably most critical to be able to predict um, trajectory or estimate the, the risk of a certain trajectory. This is what the tree looks like. And so based on biomarker cut points and a series of binary um, recursive partitioning decisions, patients end up classified into these terminal nodes. And so patients that end up in those, one of those four terminal nodes have a very low risk of mortality ranging from zero, which is probably not true, um, to 0 0.019. And then patients who are allocated to these two terminal nodes have an intermediate risk of mortality as listed there. And then finally, patients that are um, allocated to those three terminal nodes have a, a pretty high risk of mortality ranging from 0.297 to 0.44. Keeping, keeping in mind that overall mortality for pediatric septic shock is about 10%. And so we use those classifications um, to estimate the risk of mortality. And, and this is a, the most recent paper which um, applied these decision rules a priori to use a term that Dr. Khatri used, we locked the decision rules and applied them to a prospective cohort. And these were the performing, uh, performance characteristics. Also to build on what Dr. Khatri said, this was a very, very um, heterogeneous group or a very confounded group, if you will, because it ranged all the way from one week old babies up to 18 years of age. It included kids with no comorbidities, kids with cancer, kids with transplantation. So very, very uh, mixed bag of patients. And so similar to Dr. Katri said, we embraced that um, heterogeneity or that complexity to see if this um, <clears throat> model could perform well. And we were happy to see that it did even under those difficult conditions. This is just a representation of the same data. In, it, broadly groups the patients into low, intermediate, and high risk as predicted by this model. And you can see that the survival curves um, are quite different across those three groups uh, for 28-day mortality. If you're interested in, this, in these data, um, they're, they're published in this paper that appeared at the end of 2019. Um, this is an analogous approach. This was a really neat approach uh, that included three different investigative groups, including Dr. Khatri's group, where they, at, they took essentially all of the available transcriptomic data that was out there <clears throat> publicly and, and used different approaches of machine learning to come up with, um, with mRNA-based um, prediction tools for mortality. And, and one of those now, um, as Dr. Khatri alluded to, is almost ready for prime time by way of rapid diagnostics. Um, 
this is another example. This is again, Dr. Katri's group and Tim Sweeney's group um, that they've applied this, um, this classifier, this mRNA classifier to patients with um, um, viral infections uh, uh, secondary to COVID-19 and they were able to predict pretty accurately their, their trajectory and uh, risk of poor outcome. So those are examples of, um, of prognostic enrichment. There are many others. Now we're going to turn to predictive enrichment, and this is Dr. Vanderpoel alluded to this. And here, what I'm going to emphasize is what I call gene expression-based endotypes of septic shock. Um, I would submit to the group that you know, sort of single biomarker attempts at predictive enrichment are are clinically attractive, but I would say that they're probably biological wishful thinking. I think septic shock is much, much too complex to be able to perform predictive enrichment based on a single biomarker, but perhaps that's something that we can discuss. As I said, I understand the clinical attractiveness of that, but I'm, unfortunately, I think life is more complicated than that. And so these are examples of four different papers, um, starting chronologically in the top left is uh, um, Julian Knight's group, which described a transcriptomic signature that could group patients into two, um, two uh, gene expression-based endotypes. The next paper is from Dr. Vanderpoel's group, which used a similar approach, and they described four groups. Um, the next paper on the bottom left uh, in 2018 is from Dr. Kotri and, and Tim Sweeney, in which they <clears throat> used all publicly available transcriptomic data to generate... Um, three classifiers for, for endotypes based on gene expression. And then on the bottom right is our work back in 2015, um, describing two <clears throat> endotypes of pediatric septic shock. And so um, there's important commonalities across these four strategies. So they were all used or developed using gene, uh, whole genome transcriptomic data, sort of an unbiased discovery uh, approach. They all showed association between subgroup membership and outcome, and they all describe a subgroup that has gene expression patterns corresponding to the adaptive immune system. So it's interesting that four different groups have come up with this um, similar classification, albeit by different genes. And so I think this is really important because as, as was alluded to earlier, there's a lot of talk now about using immune enhancing therapies for sepsis. And so if one believes that these endotypes are real, for lack of a better term, one could envision that these types of therapies are going to behave very, very differently depending on which endotype one belongs to. Um, and so one of the simple questions that we've asked is, could these endotypes account for treatment heterogeneity that we see with adjunctive corticosteroids? So, right, there's been trial after trial with septic shock uh, and adjunctive corticosteroids, and we still don't really have a, a, an exact and clear answer as to, as to benefit. And that probably has to do with treatment heterogeneity and that perhaps these endotypes might account for some of that. So this is the VANISH trial. This was an adult with septic shock that they were, <clears throat> there was a two by two design uh, randomizing to vasopressin uh, and norepinephrine. And then once patients landed on a certain dose of vasopressor, they were randomized to hydrocortisone versus placebo. A subset of that group had transcriptomic data. And then the investigators classified those patients using the transcriptomic data to SRS1 or 2. And they tested for an interaction between corticosteroid exposure and SRS assignment. And what they found here is that um, among patients who are SRS2, 
corticosteroid exposure was, was associated with an increased risk of death. Um, and again, this is in the context of a randomized trial. This is analogous to our data that we published um, several years ago in which we showed that in kids that are um, allocated to endotypes A or B, corticosteroids are actually um, independently associated with increased mortality among endotype A patients. And when I say independent, independently, I mean that we were able to at least account for illness severity and those kinds of things, age and comorbidity. So the signal seems to be strong and we've been able to replicate that signal um, um, on, in various uh, subsequent studies. This is a marriage of those two studies, right? So as, as I said, the, the vanished transcriptomic data is publicly available. We downloaded that data actually with Dr. Khatri's help uh, and we assigned patients to uh, pediatric endotype A or B. Um, this is what the vanished patients look like at the top are, are what we call our reference mosaics for endotype A and B. And then the middle and last row are examples of vanished cohort patients uh, who were classified into either endotype A or B. And so we used this classification system with the Vanish cohort, and we looked for an interaction between endotype assignment and hydrocortisone. Here, the reference group is endotype B and placebo, and what we're showing here in the bottom is that um, among endotype A patients who were randomized to hydrocortisone, the odds ratio for mortality was, was higher just on the edge of significance there, reflecting a relatively small population. But the important take-home point is that we were able to use this uh, endotyping strategy in an external cohort of adults, and the data, or at least the trend that we see with um, hydrocortisone held up. So we were very pleased to see that. And so it's one thing to say who shouldn't get corticosteroids. It's another to say, well, who might benefit? And so what we've done is that we have combined um, prognostic enrichment with predictive enrichment with the technologies or systems I showed you earlier. And what we found is that endotype B patients, and these are children who are at intermediate to high baseline risk of mortality, when those patients are prescribed corticosteroids, there's a more than tenfold decreased risk for poor outcome. The caveat to these data is that they're all observational, right? So the corticosteroid prescription was at the discretion of the team caring for the patient, so the steroids were not randomized. And so there is lots of potential there for, for confounders. And so we're testing this prospectively now. This is the SHIPS trial, which is a randomized placebo-controlled trial of hydrocortisone among kids with septic shock. We will be collecting biological samples for prognostic and predictive enrichment. Um, we were not at the stage where enrichment can actually inform enrollment, but we do have a pre-specified post-hoc analysis um, where we will analyze the outcome data uh, based on stratification and enrichment. Uh, Dr. Anand's group in France is doing a very similar thing, the records trial, um, that's trying to do this same kind of predictive and prognostic enrichment in adults with septic shock who are randomized to um, corticosteroids or placebo. So more to come on that. I hope that that was of interest and that, that dovetailed well with the other speakers and happy to answer other questions. So thank you for your attention. Thank you very much for that talk. And, and yes, I would say it dovetailed perfectly with, with the speakers before. So thank you, Hector. Um, I think this, area is really exciting and, and moving very fast. It's great to see that there are now some prospective trials underway. Um, 
I guess my question is a bit broader then, as assuming that the prospective trials um, confirm the positive effects, uh, signs we've seen in the observational studies, do you think there will be any barriers to people adopting these new tools? Um, is there likely to be any hesitancy, do you think? Um, there's always hesitancy to new things. <laughs> Right. So uh, there's a whole science around that, around implementation science. Right. The barrier that I've been trying to deal with is is more the technological side. Right. So um, these uh, especially the RNA signatures, in order for them to be effective, we can't take 24 hours to get the data back. In my opinion, we need those these data back within an hour in order to inform a clinical trial and clinical decision making. Um, I'm at the bedside like many of you, so I get the practicality of actually doing this at the bedside. And so um, I recognize that that um, rapid diagnostics is a key to this. Um, so to me, that's the biggest barrier. And as Pravesh alluded to earlier, I think his group uh, is very well on their way um, to having a, a rapid um, platform that's technically friendly, accurate, reliable, um, and allow us to, to do this kind of enotyping in the ICU setting where we need that uh, to be done quickly. And up to, I think, Pravesh mentioned 64 genes, so that's impressive. Um, so I'm really looking forward to more of their work and hoping to, to be able to piggyback onto some of that work. Yeah, I, I really agree. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing, really, to hear that there, there seems to be something that's actually potentially going to be clinically useful in real time, uh, available uh, very soon, um, at least in the clinical trial context. So, so thank you very much for that talk, Hector. And I guess with that, um, we'll move on to our next talk, um, which really is, is about a project, a, a very practical project, uh, which is, is aimed at filling the gap uh, until these new technologies are available uh, rapidly in a, a point of care. And our speaker is Jean-Baptiste Ronin. He um, graduated in biology and biotechnology laboratory analysis at Lyon University. And he's worked in auditing and implementing laboratory capacity strengthening projects in various fields of biological diagnosis in lower middle income countries for Médecins Sans Frontières and the World Health Organization. And he's got a particular interest in clinical bacteriology. So as I said, he's going to talk particularly about, about what he describes really as a bridging project, um, the revival of robust manual solutions to sepsis diagnostic and AMR surveillance in low resource settings. Um, and this is the mini lab project by Médecins Sans Frontières. So um, very uh, welcome, Jean-Baptiste, and, um, and the floor is yours. Thank you so much. And you can say Doctor Without Borders as well for, for those that are not French speakers. Um, good afternoon, good morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the organizer. I'm going to present what we are doing at Médecins Sans Frontières to adapt and revive uh, common bacteriology technology to, to provide, as it was mentioned, to, to our practitioner access to clinical bacteriology laboratory to better diagnose uh, sepsis and provide AMR surveillance in low resource setting while we are waiting for such a wonderful technology that were described uh, before. So I will firstly very briefly discuss about the re-emerging threat of sepsis and AMR in low resource setting. Then I will present 
you briefly the Minilab concept, and then I will focus on the validation study we have made on the blood culture technology we, we, we selected. So as you are very aware, and I will not deep, dig into detail, the sepsis is a preventable disease that uh, life-threatening condition marked by severe organ. And in 2018, it was estimated that it had affected 49 million individuals and was related to approximately 11 million potentially avoidable deaths. Sepsis mortality is often related to suboptimal quality of care and inadequate, uh, inadequate health infrastructure, poor infection prevention measure in place. And antimicrobial resistance further complicates sepsis management across all settings, particularly in high-risk populations, such as neonates and patients in intensive care units. In a recent review, uh, it has shown that among bloodstream infections, non-typhoidal salmonella was a major cause of global mortality, especially in low-resource setting, with highest incidence in, uh, in Africa. Another recent study showed that Sub-Saharan African and Southeast Asia are the most affected region by sepsis and that the highest mortality is in neonatal and pediatric population. And this, this, uh, this geographical area and population are where uh, MSF is intervening more, uh, more often. While etiology data for neonatal infection are very scarce in sub-Saharan African, especially in bloodstream-related infection, what the study really describes is the rising concern of a bacterial being resistant to WHO-recommended antibiotic treatment. Unfortunately, today, the, the only way to diagnose sepsis or other bacterial infection and survey resistance trends in population is by implementing clinical bacteriology laboratory. The, and it's massively recommended by uh, WHO to, 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 to implement such laboratory starting from district hospital laboratory, while point of care that were described before should be implemented at primary care setting. However, the, the issue we faced many challenges in implementing those type of labs in low resource setting. They require stable electricity supply and control environments. Logistic is, is really a challenging and a nightmare. Uh, they are composed of many reagents requiring cold chain with short shelf life. Also, conventional methods such as automatic blood culture machinery, uh, they have not been adapted for those environments. And, and too few rapid diagnostics tests for bacterial detection are available. Then one of the major issues as well is then finding skilled microbiologists or experienced laboratory technicians require to work in those laboratory uh, is very difficult. And these are just a few examples. MSF has a standardized approach to surveillance and data in its own stand standalone laboratory or when working in partnership with another lab. However, some sites have so little access to microbiology that improving it, it's a key component of AMR response in itself. So leapfrogging solutions are much needed in this context, such as rapid, affordable, and effective point of care diagnostics, like it was described before, that can identify pathogen and provide antibiotic susceptibility testing. Yet, these breakthrough, affordable, low-maintenance, robust products have not yet materialized, mostly because of market failure, but as well barrier to use. As a result, MSF decided, while waiting for this technology, to develop its own leapfrog solution, and this the mini lab 
We have adapted manual bacteriology technology, focusing on the ease of use, robustness, and clinical relevance in resource-poor contexts. Its goal is to be a, a turnkey solution that is self-contained, easily uh, installed, quality assured, and adapted to low resource setting, and can be operated by trained laboratory technicians without prior microbiology expertise. The first mini-lab prototype focused on diagnosis uh, NST for, for bacterial bloodstream infection, and it can be rapidly deployed and set within one day. It is composed of six foldable uh, six foldable sturdy bench, that is a sturdy transport box that transform into a standalone laboratory bench with all the material packed inside. The modules are plug and played the, the, with washable surface, the integrated electricity protection and can be deployed in less than 20 square meter room or tent or container and provide uh, all safety requirements. To adapt clinical bacteriology uh, to lab technician, to non-expert uh, non in microbiology, sorry, we had to tackle several aspects. As mentioned uh, just before, we had to develop box bench platform to protect and transport selected equipment for rapid setup. Then we have to adapt simplif and simplify analytical process from test device to equipment used and safety measures. And then, guide user along the process with clear pictogram, graphical layouts, signposting. And finally, we, we, uh, we had to adapt didactic uh, document and training, such as uh, SOP, uh, manual for the trainers, uh, e-learnings, uh, to have rapid uh, access to, to, to all the information. And then we, we have created the, 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 uh, for the result interpretation and control laboratory information system for the workflow management and microbiology decision support system that integrate all the rules that microbiologist knows by heart uh, into a, a system that will interpret one user in case of error. These different components have been uh, individually evaluated extensively in different studies that are under publication. And I'm just going to, to, to present you today what we did uh, on the blood culture system. But very briefly, what we did to, uh, to, uh, to adapt the, the workflow is that we, we selected a biphasic blood culture bottles, and I'm just going to describe after. But we, for example, we, uh, we, with Beckman culture, we develop a unique microplate to have a phenotypic uh, identification of the bacteria instead of having two, three different uh, galleries. Uh, we had as well developed three microplates based on the microscan technology uh, to, for, for AST testing using uh, MDR indicator, uh, indicator of the glass from the WHO uh, uh, surveillance system. And we had as well de developed a probabilistic-based algorithm for pre-identification orientation and adapted several other technologies that I won't be able to, to, de to develop and present you today. So while the Minilab has been deployed uh, in, uh, in, in IT and is now under evaluation on the second field pilot in an MSF-supported hospital in Central African Republic, I'm going to present you the study we have made to validate the blood culture bottles. So you are, you are aware that manual blood culture bottles are frequently used in low resource setting where automated alternatives are less suitable. 
the, the, the manual type of BCB that we selected was done after definition of specification and massive comprehensive uh, market review. And we selected biphasic methods, so which is used to, to be named Castaneda uh, bottles, which is an old technology, because in general, they have better recovery for gram-positive species and faster bacterial growth compared to, to, to monophasic. Yet the issue is that that performance evaluation of this BCB were are lacking, and especially in comparison to automated system. So what we we did so we we selected three biphasic uh, BCB on on the on the markets, and one uh, one uh, where they were evaluated in a proof of concept prior to this to this study and the final choice was the the bi-state biphasic bottle from uh, autobiodiagnostic from china and as well we 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 kept the 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 use of uh, bacteria alert read manually because uh, actually it's widely done in uh, africa where they use the bactech or bacteria alert or other automatic uh, blood culture to read it uh, visually uh, we we use the bacteria alert in and tomate as a reference methods, and we report here some of the finding of this uh, of this evaluation. So what we did, we we spiked in triplicate with more than 177 clinical isolate coming from low resource setting, representing pathogen frequently found in low resource setting, for both adult and pediatric population. And the growth in manual BCB was evaluated by visually inspecting the, the growth and agar slant twice uh, daily. And for bacteria alert uh, blood culture, the, the color change of the growth indicator uh, was, uh, was, uh, was selected. So what we've seen in our study is that uh, the, the autobio bottles perform very, very inter interestingly uh, in terms of yield of positivity. So we had a 95.9% positivity uh, rate as compared to the automatic bottle, which, uh, which was around 96%. And in terms of speed of growth, uh, we had a better, better growth, speed of growth uh, from the, the autobio as compared to the manual read bacteria alerts at D1 and at D2 uh, as well. There were no systematic failure on the different bacteria that we uh, that we were uh, we seed into the, the blood culture bottles. So in this in vitro experiment, the, the yield and time to detection of manual BCB were comparable to an automated system. By state uh, BCB outperformed the manual uh, visual read bacteria alert bottles, and and. Visual reading of the bi-state uh, BCB was facilitated by the use of a BCB light box. So we developed a, a light box with uh, LED technology to 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 uh, to provide a, a more illumination of the of the of the bros. And recent evaluation done, which is in publish on the field in uh, in MSF hospital in IT on 450 samples, confirmed the, the ease of use of the autobio uh, bi-state uh, bi-state BCBs. So in conclusion, uh, I would like to say that clinical bacteriology has really a high added value in low resource setting for, for sepsis diagnostics. Manual blood culture are widely used, but not many studies on performance are, are available. And in low resource setting, in absence of 24-hour uh, laboratory service, manual blood culture still has a high added value to tackle sepsis, taking consideration that they are cheaper, robust, have longer shelf life, 
They are around 18 months to 24 months as compared to 12 months and require less maintenance as compared to automatic system. And when deployed, the Minilab will be able to generate standardized, representative, high-quality data on pathogen and drug susceptibility from the target population, and we hope to improve patient clinical management. And I'd like to, to thank you. Thank you very much, Jean-Baptiste. That's a re really excellent talk and um, really interesting to see something so practical happening. And as I said at the beginning of this session, uh, the overwhelming request from, from certainly yesterday's speakers in, in the majority of sessions was that we improve access to diagnostics throughout the world if we want to improve sepsis outcomes. And this project looks like it's really attempting to address this issue. Um, I have I have a question really, is is you're you're beginning to pilot this this system now. Um, how have you selected the site um, where you're going to do that and, and what are your plans, assuming this is successful, for rolling out and scaling up? Thanks for the question. Uh, actually, we selected the sites uh, based on the population that, that attend the, the, the hospital and based on the, on the strategy that MSF def defined to, uh, to provide access to clinical microbiology because we, we intend to, to provide access in, in hospitals where there, there are population at risk, like, uh, like uh, children, neonate, uh, malnourished children, or so patients living with, uh, with heads and, and other uh, patient, population at risk. So the first site was selected in IT because it was as well a burn center, so and burn tend to, to, have, uh, to be more at risk of developing sepsis. And the second site that we uh, selected, uh, which is uh, an hospital, uh, in a, pa a pediatric hospital in, uh, in Central Africa, uh, it was selected as well because it's part of the population at risk that are identified uh, in MSF as, uh, as really a priority. Okay, thanks. Um, we just got one question quickly in the chat saying, um, have these blood culture bottles been evaluated with respect to neonates? Uh, we have uh, now we have done on pediatric formulation, but not uh, not on uh, neonate, not in the in the studies that we that we have done. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jean Baptiste. The next talk uh, sticks with our theme of diagnostics and, and technology, but actually is transiting more over into the therapeutics area, which is the, the topic of the next session. So um, I'd like to introduce our final speaker, and that's Professor Alison Holmes. She is a professor of infectious diseases and director both of the National Institute for Health Research Health Protection Research Unit in Healthcare Associated Infections and AMR, as well as the Centre for Antimicrobial Optimization at Imperial College London. She leads a very large interdisciplinary infectious disease research programme focusing on antimicrobial resistance, epidemiology, public health, precision medicine, development of emerging in innovative technologies to address infection prevention and management, antibiotic optimization and antimicrobial resistance. And that's both nationally in the UK and globally. Um, so welcome, Alison. And Alison's going to be talking about harnessing digital technologies for sepsis diagnosis and decision support. Great. Um, 
thank you very much indeed, Louise, and hello to colleagues around the world. So I'm going to be um, talking uh, mostly around the perspective of how we can optimize antimicrobial therapy through the use of innovation technology and, of course, harnessing the potential of, of artificial intelligence so that we can really improve how we can use our existing agents more effectively um, and also tackle um, our very tricky uh, resistant um, infections um, and, and enhance and, and um, preserve our existing agents, but also how we can um, be much more responsive and dynamic in how we use our um, antibiotics. So, um, just thinking about our own history of developing decision support. So we've moved from developing uh, paper guides that could fit in people's pockets to developing uh, smartphone apps, to also considering the kind of social science around developing some of these decision supports. So what they call a kind of boundary object, which uh, enables different social groups to engage around something that means different things to different groups and how we can actually use the decision support to um, engage multi-professional groups in antimicrobial prescribing. And then also how can we use um, uh, incentives in terms of gaming to raise awareness and improve practice and also use the data from um, such initiatives to um, Im improve um, practice. So moving on from having a rather static um, project around um, looking at optimizing antimicrobial um, choice, we looked at, of course, how we can integrate multiple data sets to um, improve our antibiotic decision-making. Um, and also making it user-friendly. And indeed, you know, now the kind of tablet is, of course, part of the team. And we really need to think about how we engage um, with colleagues far more effectively so that they find these tools useful um, and they fit in with how um, people work and make, uh, make decisions. And a lot of work was done on looking at what people needed and existing antimicrobial decision support systems. And this is um, a lot of work done by um, Tim Rawson um, here on, on looking at um, what were the challenges in decision support um, and how could we do a lot better. So there's marked um, lack of flexibility in terms of decision support systems, in terms of recognizing intra-individual variation. There's major gaps in considering dose optimization and extremely little engagement in end users um, and almost negligible patient and public engagement. Um, they're very static and they don't actually think about the data related to how people um, make decisions or how they like risk um, uh, projected to them and very little co-design, which we can do much better at dealing with. Um, and also future-proofing in terms of integrating with any emerging um, um, diagnostic platforms um, and the consideration that actually, even although we think infectious disease is the most important thing, we really do need to recognize that comorbidities do exist and polypharmacy really does exist. So 
we um, tried to think about how best to integrate all of this into a kind of new concept of, of antimicrobial decision support that pulls much more in and also um, considers dosage much more effectively and engages with the populations that um, need to know about this and, and shape it. So that led to a variety of pieces of work and outcome which um, tested supervised machine learning for infection risk and also developed decision support systems that were highly effective at identifying um, uh, bacterial infection in um, cohorts of patients. But additionally, reflected upon the kind of nature of the data required, the ethics of it, and also the um, transparency um, and, and I think this is something we need to dwell on um, quite a little bit more. Um, we're delighted that the decision support that was developed was, um, was, C, was CE approved, which was, which was great to see. Um, but then thinking about COVID and, and does this matter in COVID? I mean, does it work in COVID in terms of identifying um, co-infection? So, our existing decision support system was not quite as good pre-COVID, but with just a, um, some addition of existing um, routine data, we were able to successfully identify um, co-infection in the context of COVID um, quite successfully. Um, and this um, uh, article was recently published in, in in March. And just to flag, this is routine data. This is nothing fancy. Um, and also it does not contain procalcitonin, but it was routine, um, routinely collected data that was um, used for this. So um, moving on to um, dosing, which is something, um, although I see, you know, there's been a lot of talk about artificial intelligence um, and different applications. I, I don't think there has been quite so much in the kind of considering of how we should be dosing our um, antimicrobials. And, you know, we, we know that there's massive heterogeneity. There's huge um, intra-individual variability, but particularly in sepsis, there's massive intra-individual variability that is really not adequately um, addressed in terms of how we um, dose our antimicrobials and how we dose them in increasingly tricky um, and um, uh, resistant in infections. So um, we then need to think about um, how we can look at, at dose monitoring. And uh, most of us think that therapeutic dose monitoring is extremely boring and really, really challenging and very difficult to do. And we're, you know, it's a logistic nightmare. So within the box, you can see the kind of pathway from taking blood from a patient, getting it to a lab, checking it in, getting it analyzed, reported, reviewed, interpreted, and then fed back to the um, fed back to the um, prescriber, um, which goodness knows how long that might take. It might be far too late to be um, able to influence any sensible decision making. And furthermore, that the dose adjustment that will be made may be based on large level population estimates and you're using that to apply to individual. So around the um, edge of that box in purple, you can see that some of the hurdles are identified, such as I said, population level estimates are being used. 
timing of samples is tricky, stability is tricky, and um, I mentioned the delays in reporting, and there may not actually be a valid assay anyway for that agent. So that's why we all think this is far too difficult. But let's think about what we could do. And so here's a little kind of wish list of how we can improve things. Um, so, so we want to get to the stage where we can have data um, to optimize antimicrobial use and tailor the dosing for the individual, the organism, the infection, and also um, the resistance um, mechanism as well. We want to be able to do this dynamically in real time, and we want this um, um, non-invasively. Non so there are um, technologies that exist. Um, so let's have a little think about the um, uh, about um, real-time drug monitoring. And we know that this technology already exists in terms of what can be done in terms of closed-loop control. And indeed, we're delighted to be working with some of the pioneers in glucose monitoring and the artificial pancreas. And indeed, that's where much of this technology has arisen from. And we're shifting that to the application in optimizing antimicrobial dosing. Um, and it's also being used in um, anesthesia as well. But so that's the kind of real time, um, that's the kind of closed loop control that can exist around antimicrobial dosing. But what about um, improved technologies for drug monitoring? So I said we need to do something minimally invasive, taking multiple blood samples or leaving indwelling um, um, intravascular devices is, is not adequate. We want things at the point of care, but that also can provide continuous monitoring and also um, look at a uh, broad range of agents. And one of the um, uh, technologies that is looking to be, um, looking to have major potential is the uh, use of microneedles and uh, microneedle um, electrochemistry sensing technology. Um, which is providing a means of doing something at the point of care and that can provide real-time continuous monitoring, no blood sampling required, opportunities, of course, in pediatrics as, 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 as well, um, and um, uh, minimally, minimally invasive and, and looking at the dermal interstitial um, fluid. So um, you can see in the picture that the, the, the microneedle patch is about the size of a postage stamp and just sits above the, sits above the skin. So how can these be used? Well, um, they already have been, and we've managed to um, turn microneedles into biosensors um, initially for the monitoring of, of penicillin. And this was by using um, the enzyme beta-lactamase as, as the means of being able to uh, sense a beta-lactam by um, the action of the beta-lactamase um, hydrolyzing a beta-lactam to uh, acid and a proton, and the microneedle surface um, being used as a pH sensor, and it can detect decreases in the pH caused by the hydrolysis of penicillin at the sensor surface, and the changes in pH are detected as voltage changes. And so this, um, this was developed and um, it, uh, proof of concept um, was published, but I'm pleased to say that we rapidly could move from a proof of concept to um, 
um, evaluation in healthy volunteers. And this was um, published by the Lancet Digital, Digital Health at the end of 2019. So this was really exciting that this actually, this actually works. And it's, it's technology that is easy and it can be produced at scale and is, um, can be relatively um, cheap. So that's around the kind of dose monitoring um, and the opportunities, um, the opportunities of these um, microneedles. I've talked already about closed loop control, and this has also been developed and investigated and tested um, for, for, for beta-lactams. Um, and as well as the opportunities for closed loop control, which is just for the individual patient, of course, anytime these um, microneedles that are connected um, wirelessly are used, they generate um, data to inform dosing of a variety of specific agents and for different clinical scenarios um, and conditions and um, organisms. So this is, this is really um, exciting. And I think there's going to be a major, major progress made in this area over the next year or two. I'm not just looking at um, enzymatic um, biosensors, but looking at aptamers. Um, and these are, you know, like um, kind of monoclonal antibodies, but DNA and RNA sequences, which um, are now available for a, a broad range of, of agents. And we are certainly now working on a range of aptamers related that we're using um, uh, for um, looking at gram-negative agents and also for um, anti antifungals. So I think this is going to be a really exciting area. It's also interesting in terms of this um, technology um, to combine different agents on the same um, postage stamp microneedle platform. And we're also exploring how this can be combined with um, biosensing of host factors. So there's a range of other ongoing work that I don't have time to go into much at the moment, but integrating the um, dose optimization also with rapid diagnostics and harnessing um, much more data from diagnostics um, by the application of uh, artificial intelligence and molecular biology, for instance, multidimensional analysis of existing PCR curves are already helping us with um, identifying a range of different um, carbapenemase producing organisms. And this is work by um, my colleague, um, Jesus Rodriguez Manzano up there, and also integrating it with physiological, um, physiological monitoring. And there's been much more talk about this as well in, um, um, in this Congress, but there, there's work existing with colleagues in Vietnam looking at um, continuous um, non-invasive monitoring um, in, in dengue, which of course is, is, is completely applicable to our, um, the context within sepsis. And I think bringing all of this together is going to be incredibly exciting. Um, so thank you very much. And I've got masses of people that I work with, which who bring a range of skills together. Thank you. Thank you, Louise. Thank you very much, Alison. Um, th that was a really comprehensive um, and kind of whirlwind tour through through many areas we haven't even touched on yet uh, in this session. I think one of the the comments here, well, many comments saying excellent presentation and 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 uh, I would very much agree with them. I think you've you've touched on things 
which are really important, like how to engage end users with co-design. You've talked about approvals for clinical decision support tools. And of course, then you've brought in this whole area of precision and, and personalized um, therapeutics. I guess we're, we're nearing the end of the session. And I guess uh, my question probably to you is if you if you have to pick one area which you think is going to see the most rapid development towards real clinical use, use and, and utility, what would your guess be? Oh, ooh, OK, I'll have to select one. Um, well, I think we're already there with the decision support, Louise. I, I think I think. Whilst everybody's focusing on data, we're not actually focusing on the people and the kind of qualitative data about how people use decision support. But I think that's already there. But I think in terms of the technology, I think the opportunity for the use of biosensors for both um, drug monitoring and um, uh, host response monitoring um, is, is, is going to be um, uh, massively advanced over the next two to three years. Great. Thank you. Um, and so I think uh, at this point, I will draw this session to a close. I would like to thank all our speakers. Um, they've given some excellent presentations. They've stimulated a lot of interesting chat and discussion in the dialogue. And, and I, we're very grateful for your time uh, preparing and presenting to us today. I'd like to thank all the participants. Um, it's amazing looking at the chat to see how many countries, uh, people are in so many countries and, and engaging in this session as well. So thank you very much. As I said earlier briefly, uh, everything has been recorded and over the coming weeks, these um, sessions are going to be released either on to YouTube and, and also Apple Podcasts. So keep looking for those. Please continue to listen to the, the final few sessions of the, the Sepsis Congress. They're moving on to therapeutics and management now. And of course, interact via the um, World Sepsis Congress and Global Sepsis Alliance websites. So again, I, I thank sponsors, I thank the organizing committee, and uh, I thank our speakers and of course the audience. Thank you. Thank you for listening and participating in World Sepsis Congress. Session 12 is already in the feed, and we will wrap up with Session 14 and 15 next week on June 15th. See you then.